Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent, fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, 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 one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. So I'm from a stock that pitch cocktail bombs and hand grenades. We pour cayenne pepper around the perimeter of a building to keep the police dogs at bay. I'm the Panther Party in a desire housing project for New Orleans. I'm a nigga turning the gun on the National Guards. Take a long, long look. I'm a cook in the kitchen asking the missus to taste the dinner. Take a long, long sip because death ain't always this good. It's eyes popping out their sockets. It's a lifeless body rocking backwards and forwards. It's a boy's Bad 47 times in front of the church house. It's a man 43 years old stuffing his penis in a nine-year-old girl's mouth. No, death don't always taste good. Just don't sound like something I want to eat often. I hear them say it was like a train came through the room, left mama so depressed she was unable to move until one day. A few months after the hurricane, Husband and child found the Trinity bloody in bed. His wife 
son of daughter dead and on the end table there was a letter that read I couldn't stay here not for one minute longer and it made no sense for me to leave here alone cause who would take care of my babies with their mama gone I'm telling you death ain't always good it'll leave you finning for water and food it'll riddle up your body in an Audubon ballroom they'll El Hajj Malik El Shabazz you crown you king then dethrone you in a Lorraine hotel they'll disfigure your body to where folk can't tell if you Emmett Till or not tell them mama keep that casket open let all the world see it ain't just burning in Mississippi hell is hot wherever you be from the rooftop to the cell block step on up to the auction block been over touch your toes so show your teeth lift her titties examine his balls it damn near sound like a hip hop song but it's slavery at its peak a circus for all the freaks they'll warn you caution when you speak can't afford the truth to leak but we'll say blessed are the meek and all the ones who make peace and all the ones who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness for we say theirs is the kingdom earth is their inheritance so no matter how treacherous they'll try to trap us in them trenches they'll dig deeper ditches but all that matters is this which side will we pick which path will we choose either win or lose cause death don't come in vain not for us to remain enslaved or our spirits to remain in cages it comes so we though we might be courageous to fulfill our obligation to our God and all creation and stand in determination able to look death in the face and say we made it we made it we made it connect with the information your show documentaries the books that helps with the knowledge the knowledge is only one part of the therapy only one part of the treatment people also have to honestly look at themselves and the beliefs that they hold about black people this is going to be difficult black people are going to have to admit to themselves that they still feel inferior they're going to have to admit that they do think white people are more intelligent. They're going to have to admit that they think white people are more beautiful. They're going to have to admit that they don't think black people are capable of self-government. You have to sit down, pull out a piece of paper, and write down every negative belief you have about yourself and your race. And then once you see what it is you think about yourself that is inaccurate, you then have to deliberately work on reconditioning your unconscious. And the way you recondition your unconscious is by consciously keeping negative content from coming into the mind while at the same time constantly introducing your mind and repeating within your mind positive information. See, the unconscious is the creature of habit. The reason why we hate ourselves so well is because we were taught that we were nothing for 243 years. So you can imagine told the same thing for 243 years, the conditioning is strong. So to uncondition, you have to do the same thing. Now, the good news is it won't necessarily take you 243 years to uncondition the self-hatred, but it will be extensive. The problem is we're still allowing ourselves to be subject to negative information, and we're allowing our children to be subject to negative information as well. So while we are engaging in self-directed mental reconstruction therapy ourselves, our children are being victimized by white supremacy because we're not controlling who teaches them, we're not controlling where they're taught, we're not controlling the music, the movies, or the information that they're looking at. So we're making slaves in our houses right under our own nose. And that is that we are not as serious about building institutions as uh, we have more information at our disposal than any time before. We are the most knowledgeable Africans in the, in the history of the world outside of the Nile Valley Africans who built the greatest civilizations. But in terms of pure information about oneself, we have more than any other African, at least since the beginning of slavery. But that has not led to institutions. 
For example, the Black Panther Party, they had breakfast programs. They had lunch programs. They had health programs. You look at Marcus Garvey, he had a steamship corporation. He had a factory to make black dolls for our daughters. He had universities. Uh, you look at Booker T. Washington and many other blacks who started the historically black college movement. They built institutions to teach black people. You look at the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, they had restaurants, okay? They had programs to teach uh, black children who they were, and then they had jobs where they could employ them. They were institutions. We don't have institutions. All we have is information, and we're being content with the information. You know, we have lectures. We do movies. Information is not leading to institutions. It's because black people are not interested in using their income for their own improvement. Black people do not trust themselves enough, each other. We do not trust each other enough, nor are we committed to the struggle enough Conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard. You liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Oh, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. Oh, you know, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, He's become one of us. What we need to do is flood the world with new African histories that contain our European perspectives only. What we need to do is flood the world. Flood the world. Flood the world. History is being changed all the time. And then the people that control things, what do they do? They suppress the truth by calling you a racist if you challenge their version of history. Hey guys, the gig is up. I'm not the real Jesus. As a matter of fact, the fella's name wasn't even Jesus. He had a Hebrew name. There wasn't a letter J until a few hundred years ago. <laughs> With that being said, I have fooled the whole world into the biggest sham of all time. The name and identity of the real fella has been taken over by me. <laughs> there are thousands of paintings of Jesus, and they don't even come close. Which served to replace the real fella, who probably looked more like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> but who cares? 
the truth doesn't matter. As long as you pay your tithe. <laughs> gotcha. Good evening and welcome to Our Common Ground. James Baldwin, in his essay, White Guilt, wrote, History is nearly no one seems to know is not merely something to be read, and it does not merely refer or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could Scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames and reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Tonight, at our common ground, we ask the question, are all the issues and the racially charged landscape in which we live as blacks in America as a result of our disconnection from our history? What are the residuals of miseducation, media, and denial? This is Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Stay tuned. Now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening to all of you who have joined us at Our Common Ground on this November 9th, 2013. Checking off, fall has come in. I hope that you are all well. We've got a lot of stuff to do tonight. Uh, Our program is open mic, and if you want to write it down, the number is 347-838-9852. And if you are listening and would like to join us in our dynamic and active live chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG, blogtalkradio.com OCG, and you can find many of our listeners in the chat room, and they will be discussing and following us in this live broadcast. It's a wonderful, wonderful fall weekend, and we hope that you are enjoying it with your family. Many of us have just finished uh, elections, and I hope that went well for you. Um, It was interesting, uh, on a personal note, uh, this week as I cast my vote for the first time for a new mayor in the city of Boston, um, Marty... Um, I want to say Marty Graham, but it's not Marty Graham. (laughs) Uh, Well, Marty is the new mayor of Boston, um, and uh, we're going to see if we can't get him on the broadcast because I want to talk to him about a couple of things. His background is labor, he touts, and we will see what his uh, platform and agenda is going to be over the next four years. 
uh, as some of you might know, there are mayors where terms are unlimited. Uh, Thomas Menino goes out after 20 years. I worked with uh, Mayor Menino when he first came into the city council. I was uh, chief of staff for uh, Councilman Thomas Atkins, who was the first African-American um, city councilor in the city of Boston, and he was also a student at Harvard Law School uh, as he sat as a city councilor. Uh, thank you for joining us again. We've got a lot of things to do, as I said. Um, I, but I do want to review with you as we look at our framework tonight, which is disconnected from our history, the residuals of miseducation, media, and denial. You know, I listen to you as you call in and as you chat in our chat room over the years, and um, I, I have a brain that kind of summarizes stuff very quickly, processes it, summarizes it, and comes to some understanding of what people are saying and underneath what they are talking about, which is somewhat different. And I offer to you tonight as we go through uh, some material that I think is going to help us in framing this whole question, whether or not we find ourselves um, as we look in the mirror of our communities and our people, we find ourselves in disarray. We are not organized. We have not strategically planned or implemented plans, programs, and agenda which serves our community. We have educational processes which are failing our children, an economic infrastructure which maintains poverty uh, in the majority of our community. And one of the things that I often wonder is those of us who do read the blogs, who do read the newspaper, who do read the magazines, uh, I'm a religious reader of Black Agenda Report and the Black Commentator and Your Black World and a thousand other um, scholars and journalists who are out there, Yvette Carnell, who we had with us, authors, uh, observe, social observers and analysts. And I often wonder if those of us who are trying to process all of that information really understand what our history is, what it means. Now, let me highlight for you, I think, which is a very profound uh, quote from James Baldwin's essay, White Guilt. And I, I really recommend, if you have not read this essay, that you do so. Uh, James Walt Baldwin's Message for White America, uh, and it is called White guilt. Uh, and you can find it online if you uh, search for it. I'm going to try and uh, find it and post it during the course of this, um, of this broadcast for those people who are in our chat room. But here's the quote. History, as nearly no one seems to know, 
is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. And it is with great pain and terror that one begins to assess the history that has placed one where one is and formed one's point of view. In great pain and terror, because thereafter, one enters into a battle with that historical creation. Oneself and attempts to recreate oneself according to a principle more humane and more liberating, one begins to attempt to achieve a level of personal maturity and freedom which robs history of its tyrannical power and also changes history. I mean, this brother was just so bad and so genius and so brilliant for his time. Now, keep in mind, James Bowen wrote this. He wrote this at a time where there, had, there was not a great deal. Well, it certainly were not as many centers of black scholarly thought. There were no blogs. There was no Internet. There was none of that. All we had to rely on was one, our moral barometer, and two, our confidence that we had the intellectual ability to process who we were as black people in America. I mean, this, this man was just beyond, beyond anything uh, and in 1961, when he wrote this, James Ball was was not uh, not only a critically acclaimed and widely read novelist and essayist, he was a black spokesman in 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 increasing demand by both black and white audiences, and he did not hold back. But one of the things that I think that we have to do is we have to frame what really is the matter of our history. Uh, I don't know um, how many of you uh, have children in your family, teens and college students. I've got college student, preteen, and a toddler. Um, I've got... Um, I have grand nephews and nieces who are getting ready to go to college in high school. And the family always looks to me to provide some guidance about the kinds of readings that they should be doing and that kind of thing. And I think that all elders in a family uh, need to be able to have a reference uh, for 
their family, to offer to their family. So uh, James Baldwin is one of the people, but one of the things, and I know you all get tired of me always talking about this whole notion of what we used to do. Well, we did some some pretty awesome stuff. Um, and one of the things that I think, uh, and I've been doing a lot of thought about it, and I think I talked about it last week and week before last with George Curry and, and David Icard and talked a little about it with James Perry, uh, uh, James B. Perry, not James Perry from uh, Melissa Harris Perry's husband in New Orleans, but the other James Perry. I have two James Perrys who are, are our common ground voices. But one of the things that um, has occurred to me is that when, as we educate our children, aside from the issue, the very apparent issue of we allow schools to educate our children, and I think we need to rethink that, and I hope we could talk about some of that for a little while tonight, but one of the things that we do is that we haven't done for, for many generations is to get our children involved in oratory. Black people in this country have written some of the most profound and powerful speeches of all times. Uh, one of the ways in which my generation engaged in black thought was by learning those speeches, by taking on the persona of the writers like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and, and, and Nat Turner and, and the man from the Amy Church and uh, Richard Allen and Jarena Lee, the speeches of uh, not only Dr. Martin Luther King but Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and the letters of prominent black strugglists. And, and I think that we have to go back to an African concept. It's a word that I talk about a lot is namo, and that is that words live. They have life. Namo, N-O-M-M-O. They have life. And when children are participating in oratory, um, I, I, I believe that NAMO takes place. So when we stop having oratory conte oratorical contests in our community, in our churches, when we somehow believe that it was not necessary to do that because some of those speeches had become popular, um, there were other books, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that could be read, that children could learn stories and learn lessons, then we left our children open to not experiencing NAMO in a way where they take on the persona of black leadership and black history and the words uh, are words that they would never be able to write but they would be able to embrace the spirit. That's something that we're not doing. That that just occurred to me. And and I'm in the process of working with a, a communications college here, Emerson College and a law school, to develop a speech program, oratory and debate, 
and public speaking and uh, the other thing that you do when you when you do poetry and, and prose. So, and, and it's going to be for black, uh, junior, middle, and high school students. Uh, that's something that I, I really want to do. It's uh, it, it's really pressing me. But uh, getting back to our, our our framework here tonight, disconnected from our history, I want to spend some time tonight connecting you because I think that we think that it is not important to live out as James Baldwin says that we should and that we do. I think that we have placed impediments and barriers around experiencing our today in the vision, in the third eye, in the third mind, in the second mind of our history. So I'm going to share with you uh, something that I have put together to help you. It's pretty long, and we have some people who are already on the line who want to talk, and um, we're going to give them a chance to talk, and if you want to write it down, our number is 347 Eight three eight nine eight five two. If you'd either like to call in and listen, or call in and have remarks, but give us some time to experience this. Uh, and um, at the top of the hour, I will open up the lines. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm honored to be able to share with you to create a sanctuary of black truth. They came from different lands, all facing an uncertain future. English and Ashanti, Mendy and Portuguese, German and Igbo, Fanti and Spaniard, French and Angolan, some seeking adventure or riches or religious freedom. Others were captives, bartered and sold like cattle. Together they would build a nation and struggle over the very meaning of freedom and create the America we have inherited today. I don't think you can understand race relations today. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for a few minutes because I, 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 I neglected to ask you, to listen to this piece in in a certain kind of context, the context of how we don't value and treasure and see ourselves in our history. But I also want you to think about a couple of things. What you know about poverty. Um, I want you to think of it in the context of the debate that's going on in this nation around the Washington, D.C. football team and the name change question. I want you to listen to it in the, in the context of what we do about our children in the school-to-prison pipeline, what we do to our men in the NFL, in the NBA, what happens to our women when they become 
educated and seek professional opportunities. And what has happened to the institutions in our community? I also want to ask you to look at it in the lens of how it seems that black politicians are going to prison for their infractions and white politicians are not. So we'll begin again. They came from different lands, all facing an uncertain future. English and Ashanti, Mendy and Portuguese, German and Igbo, Fanti and Spaniard, French and Angolan, some seeking adventure or riches or religious freedom. Others were captives, bartered and sold like cattle. Together they would build a nation and struggle over the very meaning of freedom and create the America we have inherited today. I don't think you can understand race relations today without understanding slavery. Even though people will say, I didn't do it, my father didn't do it, even my grandparents, they didn't do it. One of the things that's essential is to know that slavery is not just a southern institution, it's an American institution. What evolves in North America is the belief system where to be black meant to be a slave and to be a slave meant to be black. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Why is it self-evident? It came from God. They're inalienable. Government secures them. Remarkable document. Didn't apply to black folks. And the man who wrote those words Thomas Jefferson kept slaves. He also wrote sometime later to a friend, if there is a just God, we're going to pay for this. Slavery and freedom existed side by side in this country. I think the issue is, did it always have to be that way? And the early history of America indicates that it probably did not.
In America, it seemed, all men would be equal. All men would be free. The African trade is a trade of the most advantage to this kingdom of any we derive, and as it were all profit, it is indeed the best traffic the kingdom has, as it doth occasionally give so vast an employment to our people both by sea and land. John Carey, Bristol, England. In 1698, the English Parliament ended the monopoly of the Royal African Company on the African slave trade. It became the right of every freeborn British subject to trade in slaves. Over the next half century, the number of Africans transported to the British colonies in British ships increased from 5,000 to 45,000 a year. England became the largest trafficker in slaves in the Western world. It is the first principle and foundation of all the rest, said one British writer the mainspring of the machine which sets every wheel in motion. He was born Ibo, the son of a tribal elder, the favorite of his mother. He died an Englishman, the father of two daughters, and the husband of an Englishwoman. At the age of 11, Olauda Equiano was kidnapped by Africans and sold to Europeans. When the grown people were gone far in the fields to labor, the children generally assembled together to play. And some of us often used to get up into a tree to look out for any assailant or kidnapper that might come upon us. One day, when only I and my sister were left to mind the house, two men and a woman got over our walls and in a moment seized us both without giving us time to cry out or to make any resistance. They stopped our mouths and ran off with us. Olauda Equiano. So what begins to happen in the 1640s is that those who are controlling the Virginia colony say to themselves, the fluidity that we've seen in the past, the fluidity that has allowed an Anthony Johnson to serve less than a life term, to acquire his own piece of ground, to develop a free status, is not something that we want to project as going further in the future. We want to close down that opportunity. We want to begin to show some distinctions. The English definition of who could be enslaved 
began to shift from non-Christian to non-white. For Anthony and other Africans in America, the idea of an equal chance in the colonies was now under attack. In 1641, Massachusetts became the first colony on the British-American mainland to recognize slavery as a legal institution. Connecticut followed in 1650, Maryland in 1663, New York and New Jersey in 1664. Virginia legally recognized slavery in 1661, and a year later, a Virginia court decided that all children born in the colony would be free or slave according to the condition of the mother. In Virginia, slavery would be defined by race and perpetuated through heredity. In 1640, the year Anthony Johnson purchased his first piece of land, three servants had run away from a Virginia plantation and headed for Maryland. Captured and returned to their owner, they were tried for breaking their contract. The said three servants shall receive the punishment of whipping and to have 30 stripes apiece. One called Victor, a Dutchman, the other a Scotchman called James Gregory, shall first serve out their times according to their indentures, and one whole year apiece after, and after that to serve the colony for three whole years apiece. The third, being a Negro named John Punch, shall serve his said master or his assigns for the time of his natural life. Jamestown Court Recorder. The time of his natural life. According to all the legal records that survive, no white servant in America ever received such a sentence. So what begins to happen in the 1640s is that those who are controlling the Virginia colony say to themselves, the fluidity that we've seen in the past, the fluidity that has allowed an Anthony Johnson to serve less than a life term, to acquire his own piece of ground, to develop a free status, is not something that we want to project as going further in the future. We want to close down that opportunity. We want to begin to show some distinctions. The English definition of who could be enslaved began to shift from non-Christian to non-white. For Anthony and other Africans in America, the idea of an equal chance in the colonies was now under attack. In 1641, Massachusetts became the first colony on the British-American mainland to recognize slavery as a legal institution. Connecticut followed in 1650, Maryland in 1663, New York and New Jersey in 1664. Virginia legally recognized slavery in 1661, and a year later, a Virginia court decided that all children born in the colony would be free or slave according to the condition of the mother. In Virginia, slavery would be defined by race and perpetuated through heredity. Perhaps in the middle of the 17th century, if you were one of several thousand Africans living in Virginia, uh, you certainly knew that your children would 
would uh, be free, you might have that expectation. And to suddenly find themselves involved in lifelong servitude and then to realize that in fact their children might inherit the same status, that was a terrible blow. That was a terrible transformation. Virginia and north to Maryland. There he leased 300 acres he called Tony's Vineyard. On that farm, Anthony Johnson died. Back in Virginia, a jury decided that the land Anthony had left behind could be seized by the state because he was a Negro and by consequence an alien. One wonders how Johnson would have viewed this changing world of Virginia. He lived a very long time. He survived and did quite well by the standards of the day, building up properties, hundreds, hundreds of acres, and cattle. By the standards of the time, anyone would say he did quite well. There's no reason to believe, uh, as of, say, the 1670s, that the Johnson family is going to be squeezed out Within a few years, Anthony's grandson, John, purchased another 44 acres, and in memory of his grandfather's homeland, called the farm, Angola. By the time the end of the century came, Anthony Johnson's children and grandchildren may well have been fighting to stay free. Many free people were sold into slavery no, they couldn't prove that they were free. They, they had no way of letting anybody know that they were free. So if a plantation owner came by and said, this is my slave and I want to sell him, you were sold. By the end of the century, nearly 58,000 people lived in the colony. 16,000 were listed as Negroes. In 1705, the Virginia Assembly passed laws clearly defining the distinction between a slave and a servant, relegating all slaves to the status of real estate. The next year, John, the third generation of Johnsons in America, died without an heir. That would be the last mention of the plantation named for Anthony's birthplace, Angola Plantation, like the Johnsons themselves, disappeared from the record books of colonial America. I looked in the east, I looked in the west. I For the first 50 years of the colony, most of the unfree labor force had been European, but that was about to change. Word of the hard life in Virginia had gotten back to England, and the colonial government faced a growing shortage of servant labor. Also troubling the colony were the thousands of free men, most former indentured servants, who were unemployed and roaming the countryside. 
The problem they face is not only a decreasing supply of indentured servants, but they face this increasing problem of what to do with all these indentured servants once they live out their term. And a lot of them were surviving. They had to be given land. They had to be given their freedom dues. And one of those dues included even guns. And there was a lot of unrest in Virginia. In 1661, servants rebelled in York County. Two years later, Gloucester County authorities foiled a plot by nine servants to steal arms and ammunition and march on the seat of colonial government. In 1676, the unrest in Virginia exploded into civil war. An army of 500, free men, servants, and slaves rebelled against the colonial establishment's restriction on available lands. They attacked peaceful Indians, ransacked property, and burned Jamestown, sending the governor into hiding. This disorder that the indentured servant system had created made racial slavery to southern slaveholders much more attractive because what, what were black slaves now? Well, they were a permanent, dependent, labor force who could be could be defined as a people set apart they were racially set apart they were outsiders they were strangers and in many ways throughout the, the, the world with with a couple possible exceptions slavery has taken root especially well when the people who are enslaved are defined as strangers as outsiders and can therefore be put into an inheritable permanent status of slavery. I understand there are some slave ships expected into York River now every day. I desire you to buy me five or six slaves, whereof three or four to be boys, a man, and a woman. The boys from eight to seventeen or eighteen, the rest as young as you can procure them. William Fitzhugh, Virginia Planter, 1681. Few ships coming from Africa made the voyage beyond the Caribbean to sell their cargoes on the mainland of British America. In 1672, the King of England chartered the Royal African Company, encouraging it to expand the British slave trade. Shareholders included 15 English lords and 25 sheriffs, the governor of Virginia, and John Locke, the philosopher of liberty. In its first 16 years, the company transported nearly 90,000 Africans to the Americas. In the last decade of the 17th century, it was possible to imagine that in a single year, the number of new Africans arriving would equal the total black population in the colony or close to it. These were men and women that had no sense of the world they were getting into, and they seemed to whites as very alien, foreign, unknowable. The Europeans look upon these people, and they project an image on them. They project an identity, and that identity is African. What that means is not American what that means is non-European, what that means is separation. All servants imported and brought into this country who are not Christian in their native land shall be counted 
and be slaves. If any slave resists his master correcting such slave, and shall happen to be killed in such, it shall not be accounted felony. If any negro shall absent himself from his master's service and lie hid and lurking, and if he shall resist any person employed to apprehend the said negro, then it shall be lawful for such person to kill the said negro. Virginia General Assembly, June 1680. We think about slavery as this complete package just came to evil landowners, and it didn't happen that way. It happened one law at a time, one person at a time. And as landowners felt the need to control a different behavior, year after year, they added more laws until finally, 1691, they passed the law that made it illegal to free a black slave unless they were leaving the colony. So by then, it was pretty much set that this was going to be a slave society. To move from indentured servitude to racial slavery means that they're setting their own history on a course where freedom is gonna depend on slavery, where the political economy of a major portion of these colonies is gonna depend on slavery. Uh, where the freedom of some is going to depend on the bondage of others. It means that the American colonies, this jewel of the British Empire, is living this contradictory history now of a society that is increasingly rooted in a labor system that's human bondage, that's racial slavery. Perhaps in the middle of the 17th century, if you were one of several thousand Africans living in Virginia, uh, you certainly knew that your children would, would uh, be free. You might have that expectation. And to suddenly find themselves involved in lifelong servitude and then to realize that in fact their children might inherit the same status, that was a terrible blow. That was a terrible transformation. In the East, selling a slave off is a major form of control. One person might say, I know I can't control this person, so I'm going to sell that to, you know, Joe Smith next door because he's bigger, he's stronger, he's more willing to be brutal, he's whatever it is, I can sort of basically cash out. I can get my money out of the situation and leave the problematic issue of, of controlling this person to someone else. Have you been in Glendora all your life? Not all my life. I'm in Kansas City. I stayed up there about 30 years. My son got killed. He was living with me. And I just couldn't stand it to be there in that house. And my son, somebody shot him down. And I left and come to Mississippi. But I've been staying in Mississippi, I don't know how long. Then I got up and started chopping cotton, picking cotton for getting. My mother was getting $15 a week for a whole week, five days, for the chop cotton all that. Whole week. 
for 15 dollars. We wouldn't get nothing. Sometimes we'd be hungry. We have to go to the cornfield and pull us some corn and boil it and eat. And that's why we were just about come. We ain't had nothing. Nothing. And so my mother got tired, and she left, but she come back. Miss Lucille, was your sharecropper? Was your mother a sharecropper? Yes. She got to find that $15 all the week for the rent all the week, five days in a week, $15. And show me how the process was. You were showing me something. You would be hoeing the cotton. Yeah, I get the cotton standing up there. You have to chop on this side, chop on this side, go over a little further, chop on this side, chop on this side, go over a little further. As you cut it down, you got to get it and stick it back in the dry. Oh, we were. I say we were on the slave. We have to do everything detailed to do. Sometimes we want water. We couldn't even get there. Was there a man on a horse over you or something? Yes. Yes. Did you ever see anybody get beat? Beat? Yes, I got killed. Do you remember the plantation? The plantation, what you call it, Bayland. Mississippi. Bayland, Mississippi. They were a plantation. And I remember the boss man's name. But he's been dead and gone. He's been dead and gone. You ever think about those days? Yes, I do. And I... What are you thinking about right now, Miss Lucille? Yes, thank God. When you make men slaves, you deprive them of half their virtue. You set them in your own conduct an example of fraud and cruelty and compel them to live with you in a state of war. Olauda Equiano, enslaved African. Five delegates drafted the foundation of American law and government. Neither the word slave nor slavery appear in the Constitution, but the fate of enslaved men, women, and children was carefully inscribed within its pages. The U.S. Constitution prevented Congress from voting to end the African slave trade for a minimum of 20 years. Free states were required by law to return fugitives to the slave states, and slave states were permitted to count three-fifths of their slave population in determining the number of representatives they would send to Congress. Slaveholders won an enormous political victory 
owning slaves would be part of the American freedom, and in the process, a union was forged. I am a poor Negro who with myself and my children have had the good fortune to get my freedom. I am told that they are going to pass a law to send us all back to our masters. This would be the cruelest act. To make a law to hang us would be merciful. Cato, a former slave. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. tonight on Disconnected from Our History, The Residuals of Miseducation, Media, and Denial. One of the things that occurs to me as uh, we got through that, and thank you very much for for your patience, and our number is 347-838-9852, is that the source for the feature that I put together was a documentary, Journey Through Slavery, and also an interview that was held in 2011 by high school students from the Fenway High School, of which my granddaughter is an alumni. The humanities program takes students each year on a project And in 2011, the project was a tour through the Mississippi Delta to do uh, narrative interviews with people, uh, African Americans, who lived in the area. And I think the students did an outstanding job in interviewing this one woman. But what, 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 how this frames us is that, one, we have to understand how and why the book 12 Years a Slave is so important. It is important because it chronicles the history of moving from freedom into slavery. And I talked a little bit with David Eichard last week about my own experience in in attending the film. The other is there are two things that were said here that were so important, two points, that we need to consider as we look at whether the question of how we are disconnected from our history. One is in Journey Through Slavery, an analyst makes the point of looking at the law and the history of the law, and she says that Slavery came as a result of one law at a time. The other is that we listen to the interview by the Fenway student of the resident of the Mississippi Delta and understand that much of 
what we understand about slavery and the economics of slavery continues to exist in this country, and we do not understand it in the context of what we, when we are talking about and arguing about public policy about poverty. But underneath it all is the notion that the analysts talked about slavery could be created. It was made possible. It was rationalized because there was one principle, and that is that people who became slaves were outsiders. Now just think about that for a minute. They were outsiders. The law came at one law at a time. And the Mississippi interview reminds us that most people in this country have no fear of retribution at the absence of enforcement of laws that protect people. Our number is 347-838-9852. Would like to hear your point of view, your response. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to go to our phones. Thank you so very much for being with us tonight here at Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. Our Common Ground, alternative activist in our talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. At this very moment, you are standing in the eye of the hurricane, and you're going to sit here and pretend. You think that White House is going to protect you? You're not the fixer here. You're the problem. You're a client. You're my client. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of pushback talk radio. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network, Fridays, 10 p.m. So where spirit matters. Across the board, the reality of racism, the part it is playing in frustrating the aspirations of millions of black children all across this country through poverty, through inferior public schooling, through poor health care, etc., and recognize the part that racism plays in that, or, 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 or we aren't. And if we aren't going to recognize it for them, then we're not going to make any excuses about policy failures in the White House either. If it ain't no excuses for them, it ain't no excuses for him. If they can, if they can face the hell that they're catching and still be expected to succeed, then damn it, we expect to get a public option. 
and we expect to see some social justice, and we expect to be some, see something done about the plight of the poor. Don't give me that the economy is too bad. You know why? Because we got no excuses. Because we just a zero-sum game. We believe... Spirit Matters. Only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where Spirit Matters. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare Real Raw and Right Now, Fridays and Saturdays, 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday Brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare Brunch. Real Raw and Right Now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning. 11 a.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. On Blog Talk Radio. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Conditioning your unconscious. And the way you recondition your unconscious is by consciously keeping negative content from coming into the mind while at the same time constantly introducing your mind and repeating within your mind positive information. See, the unconscious is the creature of habit. The reason why we hate ourselves so well is because we were taught that we were nothing for 243 years. So you can imagine told the same thing for 243 years, the conditioning is strong. So to uncondition, you have to do the same thing. Now, the good news is it won't necessarily take you 243 years to uncondition the self-hatred, but it will be extensive. The problem is we're still allowing ourselves to be subject to negative information, and we're allowing our children to be subject to negative information as well. So while we are engaging in self-directed mental reconstruction therapy ourselves, our children are being victimized by white supremacy because we're not controlling who teaches them, we're not controlling where they're taught, we're not controlling... Saturday night, open mic. Thank you for joining us tonight.
and thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground, the sanctuary where we protect the black truth. Our number is 347-838-9852. And in the feature that we that we provided and offered for you for thought tonight, one of the things that has really been on my mind this week is this debate relative to why the Washington, D.C. NFL team is unwilling to change its name and what that means not only to the original peoples of America and the offense in their face all year round, but what it means to us. You know, I'm a big fan of Battlestar Galactica, and I have to shake my head, and I have to think about uh, a, a, a lot of stuff. This whole notion of what we do in the NFL and the NBA where we pay uh, black men and black women uh, millions of dollars to... Uh, to team for teams to make multi billion dollars off of them, and then when they go broke, everybody's shaking their head. Uh, an example uh, in the last couple of weeks was um, Allen Iverson, the NBA player, whose uh, the headline said he's retiring with less money than a five year old, and then we had this situation with Incognito, who I had never heard of, who plays for the Dolphins team. Uh, and then we've got black NFL players, NBA players out there. They're being arrested. They're buying guns. I mean, this Iverson man spent $1 million one night gambling in Las Vegas. You see, this is what I'm talking about when I say we're disconnected. I'm a big fan of Battlestar Galactica, and I will tell you that there is one line from that TV uh, series that you should have as your mantra this week, and that is, this has happened before, and it will happen again. We're going to go to our phones. 918, thank you so very much for your patience. I respect you and thank you for your call. You're on the air. Well, I've enjoyed your show so far, and I'm sure I'll continue to enjoy it. I homeschool my children because of the education that they receive in a public school. I believe it's slanted. They use the Common Core, which has critical race theory is entwined in all that. You know, I think you're very right about controlling your child's education, letting the child know who they are and the full scope of history, not a slanted view. Um, I've read a little bit about white guilt, and I still don't have a formed opinion on it, but I was interested in your your classes on elocution. There's some different ways people can do that throughout the states. There's uh, Toastmasters. They have a junior form of Toastmasters. There's some things you can do in your community to for those that are listening to further that. I think it's so important to critical thinking and knowing the difference between logic and rhetoric, you know, all these different things. I was 
very I've loved your show so far. It's I've been tweeting oh, thank it. You. Even you know even former ambassador uh, to the UN Sarkaby came from Bosnia. You're doing really really well. I just um, kudos. Well, thank you very much. And would you like me to put you on mute? I'll I'll respond in the context of some other discussion about. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I am a, uh, I was for a long, very long time, a, a leader in Toastmasters. Um, oh, wonderful! And um, I'm interested in where you get your materials for. I'm I'm assuming, and yes. I shouldn't assume. I, I assume right. that you are Caucasian or white. I am. I am. Okay. I have two children that are of different races. So uh-huh. I mean. That's inclusion. My father yeah. worked for the NAACP. But, um, you know, homeschooling, it's such a wonderful thing. There is a new homeschooling uh, online school for through Tom Woods. He's Ron Paul's right-hand man, educated at Harvard, got his Ph.D. at Columbia, very well-spoken man. It has a lot about history, and it's really weak on math. But there's lots of options open out there to people – all shades of human. Well, I, I I really believe, and I I thank you for your call, uh, and I'm going to put you on. Are you listening okay, from your you. smart device? Okay, thank you very much phone. for your call. Um, we have to be very very careful about uh, homeschooling materials. Two o two, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. My sister, my sister, this is Lance. How are you? Um, Whoa. Hey there, I'm enjoying man. the classroom. I, I, I'm in class, sis. I'm, I'm, yeah, we, I'm loving we, the we, fact that that you are reinforcing. I mean, you're putting it down. You know, it's uh, you you put some things in a serious context, and I really I know that your audience who listens to you all the time has got to love the fact that you are always speaking truth to power, and you're speaking truth to our to our hearts, because we know what's true. We might be in denial, um, mm-hmm. like in the Matrix, you know, like, you know, we're sitting at the table uh, saying, you know, we know this is not real, but it tastes good. Um, <laughs> because that denial is what's killing us, you know. Yeah, the di- um, denial is is really what's killing us. I mean, when we listen to that that woman in Mississippi Talk about her life in 2011. Mm-hmm. We know that that is happening, but we don't but put you, it in the context of poverty. The poverty that we and talk about. That's public critical. Policy. That's critical. Yes. Yeah. Because poverty is the issue. What does poverty look like? How, exactly. how do we get to this poverty where poverty has now become race? And it. it you know, one of the uh, workshops that I recently went to is called Undoing Racism. And in order to understand racism itself, this institutionalized, internalized um, aspect, you have to go through history. And you have to understand how different uh, programs were put in place, what they call set-asides and so forth. When, when they talk about us, it's a negative. But there are so many um, provisions that were made so that we would we would continue to be put into a state of poverty, yeah, uh, state yeah. of lack lack of, um, 
And so poverty be, has begun to look like us because that it is us. It is um, us. So it's, exactly. And then when you talk about, you know, all of this in the context of these certain issues, like, you know, the D.C. football team, okay, that's, that's an issue of identity. NFL, NBA, that's product property. You know, it's just all these different things that you can look at and understand what is designed, you know. Um, so the history part of it is really important just so that you understand where we started from. So when you begin to allow yourself to fall into that, you know, illusion of inclusion, it just gets real tricky. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that that uh, the journey uh, through slavery really outlines and highlights for us is the notion that uh, we are moving, I mean, if people really listen, we are moving through the same uh, stages today Mm -hmm. as free Africans who came to this country before the founding of America. And I did post in our chat room that I recommend that everyone reads They Came Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. Hello. Because if you do not understand that the first Africans that came to this country did not come on slave ships, which is why it's important to put Solomon Northrup's uh, life in perspective. Because as they say in, on Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> It has happened before, and it will happen again. And and, and the thing is that we have to be admonished, Blanche, by this whole notion we're seeing every kind of clue. When Michelle Alexander published her book, um, The New Jim Crow, she was talking mm-hmm. about she is talking about the very early stages of slavery, mm-hmm. which is why I admonish people be careful what you call slavery, mm-hmm. you know, as we go to our jobs and say, "Oh, Monday morning, I got to get up to my slave but Blanche, let me ask you a question and and for those of you who are listening, we're listening to one of the queens of talk radio. <laughs> Um, Yeah, and it takes one to know one, just so you you know. (laughs) Let's get that clear. Blanche Williams could be was heard on XM Radio for for many years, um, and she has written a manifesto of greatness. The manifesto of greatness, and we are just so pleased. Greatness manifesto. That's okay. Sisterhood of Great. It sounded good no matter how you said it. Um, but it's the Sisterhood <laughs> and, and, and of Great so Manifest. She's going to be joining us at TruthWorks Network in, uh, very soon in December, and you'll get more information about that on Mondays at 10 p.m. But, Blanche, let's talk a little about this. I, I want to talk to you a little about this disconnection 
I talked about the concept of NAMO. I think that because we uh, believe that we are so far away from uh, the vestiges of slave law mm-hmm. that we think that we can make a, a distance. You know, my my good friend, and may he rest in peace, uh, Dr. Amos Wilson and Dr. Ben, and uh, we certainly wish him the best. Uh, he is still alive and living in New York City. But one of the things that they talk about is slavery DNA. And I think that people, when they use the word soul, you know, you've got soul, like I'm talking about soul train soul, folks. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about um, the esoteric kind of discussion that the new age has about soul. I'm talking about black people's soul, you know, like James Brown kind of, what he was singing about, we got soul. And and I think that we have lost the ability to use that in energizing um, incentive and greatness, as you call it, in our lives. We're losing so much ground. Mm-hmm. Well... When I think of the word disconnect, it's a separation from our ancestral soul. When we begin to see the oppressor as our friend, we have disconnected. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. When, we, when we begin to think that a dollar means respect, we disconnect. When we begin to see the poverty and somehow think that it's not everybody, it's not a big deal, we begin to disconnect. When we stop fighting politically, policy, where it really matters, there's a disconnect. There's the critical thinking that allowed us to survive. Okay, that that took critical thinking, strength, um, character, um, great sacrifice. But we don't. Mm-hmm. Twenty thirteen, we have a brother in the White House, an African-American in the White House, a man of color in the White House. But sisters and brothers are catching hell outside of that White House, okay? Not that far away from the White House. So that's a disconnect. It's two different Americas. And so you wonder, how did we get here and how did we allow ourselves to be lulled into this stupor? And today I I listened and watched this incredible conversation between Bell Hooks and Melissa Harris uh, Harris Harris Perry. Perry. And 
They agreed on some things, but not everything. Very interesting. Everybody should listen to that because two women that are about breaking it down, okay? And Bill spoke a lot about this um, challenging the patriarchy. And I think that 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 right now in this time is, is really critical, and I think that conversation is really, really critical because he talked well, about the 12 years of slavery. That was one uh-huh. of the – that was a conversation. Well, we're going to um, – uh, uh, week after next be running that on our program at TruthWorks Network, um, Power Views. Um, but, you know, one of the things, and, and I listened to some of, of the discussion, but one of the things in, in, in trying to temper and frame tonight's discussion that came up for me, I mean, James Baldwin, you know, he is he is like my philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and he wrote a piece um, that gave a message, um, and he was calling it the theme of um, of apocalypse. Um, mm-hmm. And he wrote in um, in this stranger in the village. You know, I can't remember my name sometimes, but I, I, James Baldwin just rolls off my tongue. People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction, and anyone who insists on remaining in a state of innocence long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. Mm. And this, this, this whole idea that we think that our lives have to be governed, directed, uh, and stamped, Validated. Validated, yeah, looking for love in all the wrong places. But Mm -hmm. if if we think that the political process is going to bring us to the place that we want to be, then we do not understand that our innocence is dead and we have turned into a monster. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I I was listening to the previous. I was listening to the previous caller talk about homeschooling her ki- her children, and this afternoon I was thinking to myself, all the people who say that they want to organize around race, hate, um, white supremacy, all of us who say that we want to resist the repression and the oppression that's going on in this country, when mm-hmm. we identify it, but we are not organizing, as Dr. Uh, Umar Johnson uh, points out in my interview with him, uh, that we are not creating institutions. The la- when was the last um, HBCU organized? When was the last Afrocentric uh, charter school organized? As a matter of fact, I don't think the charter school program in any city is going to allow Afrocentricity as the guiding principle of well, public education. Well, it shows you how well that system has worked. It shows you how well exactly. um, racism, uh, white supremacy, patriarchy in this country has worked. 
when you divide and conquer, that that is a self-perpetuating. When we become the gatekeepers, we begin to the demise of ourselves as well mm-hmm. because, you know, it's not that we can't do this because we know we can, and I, and I don't want to say we, we don't, there's no one organizing because that would not be true either. Um, it's just that it's, it's so, it's, it's, it's localized to a point where it's not getting out enough. As much as we have the social media and all this kind of stuff, I mean, back in the day, people were getting stuff out to millions. They didn't have no Facebook. It was like talking no, no. to this person, what, that person. I, 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 I think know. about that all the time. Um, the difference, I mean, but there was, but, I, but their lives are not on the line. Those sisters and brothers' lives are on the line every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't see their lives on the line because you got roofs over your head. Nobody's knocking at your door constantly. However, even though there's 44 million of us, probably about 30 million are catching hell. But I, I'll give okay. you another example of what we're not thinking about. We're not thinking about how we use the technology that is available to us. No. You know, for all all the people who say they want to organize in their neighborhood, all they got to do is go get email addresses and telephone numbers from their neighbors and say, hey, we're going to open up a blog talk radio account, and every Wednesday we're going to be talking about what goes on in our neighborhoods and what exactly. we can do exactly. to help our children. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. so simple that it's beyond belief. But because we are caught up in their system. You know, it's like politics in America has become a cesspool. Why would we want to participate, and what does it get us? Yeah, but politics is what we make it to. Politics is everything you do, everything. We have to to create our own political system. We, We definitely have to create our own political system. You know, if we participate in the cesspool, you all mm-hmm. know what you're going to come out with. You know, that that's part of it. And, and you know, you and I have had this discussion about navigation, mm-hmm. how we navigate the system. Navigate we have to be very careful. We have to be very, very careful about what systems we choose to be in and what systems are missing but you know, everything is in the system. There is not any aspect of your life that is not a part of the system. Not one. Not one. So how do you navigate that? You have to first understand that it's in everything. Once you understand that history, you, you look at it from a historic, historical perspective, and then you dissect. There's a power, with, with, what's called the, a power analysis, where you go through every system which is in a community and you see where the system Mm -hmm. and how it works. Mm -hmm. Once Mm -hmm. you do that, you will see that from education to um, the justice system to health to anything and everything Uh uh is affected by that, from utilities, health care, lending, religion, transportation, social services, everything. Everything. The system is... It involved in every aspect of our well, you lives. Know, 
one one of the things I, I was doing an interview the other day, and 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 one of the things people were asking me about, you know, who I was going to choose for this and who I was going to choose for that, and I was trying to, uh, you know, and the person responded by saying, well, uh, you know, it, it sounds like no one fits the bill for which the, that you are uh, um, are issuing. And and I said, you know, I'm not comparing the players. I don't want to be in the business of, of, you know, criticizing the NAACP, criticizing the Urban League, criticizing. Blanche, I have a question for you about the NAACP, but uh, I'm not in the business of comparing the players. I want to be in the business of reconstructing the game. Reconstructing the game. You got to break that down for me because you said reconstructing. You know, the players in this system, the uh, political system, the social service system, the nonprofit system, um, you know, we say, oh, you know, what happened to Acorn and now Bertha Lewis is working with de Blasio in New York and blah, 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 and it just goes on and on. See, I see that as an advocate. It becomes about people. Rather than it becomes about the circle, the the circle in which they're operating, and what I'm saying is, I don't want to be in the business of talking about people. I want business of reconstructing the game in which they all play, and that really gets into you have to get down uh, a real dirty uh, about what you're going to do with your local school board, what you're going to do with your local Mm -hmm. politicians. Because once Mm -hmm. you begin to influence them, you know, for instance, Mm -hmm. and I I think I said this to you, um, and and I've said this certainly to this audience, what would have occurred if at the local level, say at the state level, at the the, the city level, we had said Mm -hmm. to to the Democratic National Committee people, Look, we want a single-payer program, a single-payer plan, and if you don't commit to that, we're not committing to your to, to your candidate. And that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's where that's that is where the power comes because mm-hmm. the power is supposed to be in the people. That that's that's what this is all about the people and and until the people take the power back um they're going to continue to have to cow down to the system because the system is huge and so when people understand how huge it is and how it works and so forth that's why i say you have to navigate it because you can't break it down you can destroy it but that is like the destruction of you know in a different way Mm-hmm. But one of, one of the things, too, is that you have to examine it. I think that, you know, there have to be spec sheets and there have to be architectural drawings to understand what this system is and how we how we end up be, to begin to navigate it. And that's what a navigator does. Hey, Blanche, I have one question to ask you, and then I want to talk about you coming to TruthWorks Network. Um, I have a question about what the hell happened with Ben Jealous? You know, I don't know. I'm gonna be Nobody's honest. Nobody's talking about it. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the story is. Um, and 
you know, he is one person um, in an in an organization, and so the organization's got to stand um, beyond the man. So I don't know. That's some personal stuff, and if no one's sharing it, then you know, I just let that go. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm while I'm sitting here talking about I don't want to I don't want um, to uh <laughs> compare players. Uh-huh. Look at it. <laughs> in people's business. But I can I can't get anybody to talk about it. Let me let me ask you about uh before we talk about um your coming into the family. Uh, let me ask you about what you think is this whole media thing. You know, one of the things that the framework of this show tonight is miseducation, media, and denial. Mm -hmm. I I just want to get your thoughts about the media. Well, I knew when I got into media, um, media was part of the problem. And so I felt that if I was in it in, in such a way on a national, you know, platform that I, I had to be part of the solution. So how do I do that? So the way that you, um, that I believe to combat the negative stereotypes and the negative images was to balance that out by providing positive, uh, positive ones as well, not just from a, you know, a... Um, uh, just to make you feel good kind of thing, but something that was going to speak to you in a way that um, would inspire you to do more, you know, play you know, play in your position, in your lane, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, I've learned, I learned a lot, and I learned that that's where that navigation piece comes in because I learned a lot about D.C., I learned a lot about politics. I learned a lot about how things work and how you get things done. You can't always walk through the front door and get what you need. Sometimes you're going to have to go through a window, through the back door. You have to find another way to navigate the system. Um, media is in the business of miseducation. That is what media does on a mainstream level. Not not like what you're doing. That's not miseducation. Mainstream is mass mind control. That's what it's, it's, it's focused on the masses. Media cannot tell you what to think. Media can tell you what to think about over and over and over again. That's why you can talk, you can look at TV, and it's the same talking points over and over again on every single channel. That's mass and mind control. And the same subject. Same subject. The same they, subject. Because they yeah. all have the same... They have the same game plan, same, same, because it's all predicated on if you don't do this, you don't stay on the air. So uh-huh. don't get it twisted, okay? Scripts are in order for a reason. Um, so I was very blessed that I wasn't a scripted show because my show was more one-on-one conversations with people, and so I was able to put things in there that I may not have normally been able to if someone else was writing my script. I was really about, I got to write it, okay, because uh-huh. I researched uh-huh. it. I got into it. I know what I need to do. The denial aspect is that there is a, there's a part of uh, some radio shows where 
We spend so much time talking about the problems that we don't get to the solutions. And when you when you leave people feeling like, well, that's some really great information, but I don't know what the hell to do from here, um, that's when the 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 elephant in the room gets so big that it's sitting on you and you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, we're on the plantation 2.0. I mean, we're definitely there. We just, you know, like Carrie Tubman said, I, I'd have freed more if they knew they were slaves. Yeah. We don't even realize it. We're in that matrix we, we, where we just, you know, we don't want to see how decrepit this world is because we got to still live there, you know. And so um, that's that denial. It's like, you know, it's a real slippery slope. But there are some sisters and brothers that are not denying it, and they're not going to play no games with you. They're going to be really real and upfront. like, I don't need to go to school. I don't need to listen to all this kind of BS. Because guess what? I already know what my life is going to look like, okay? <laughs> so that's, those are children who are teenagers and so forth that have lost their innocence because it's been taken from them. But they are the most free because they know the truth, and they're like, I'm not taking this okey-doke, so you need to come straight and correct. And if you, need, you know, if you need to help me, you know how you can help me? Give me a job, okay? Give me a job that's going to help me sustain myself so I don't have to you know, do this welfare piece, which then then I'm stuck because that's, you know, that's gangster. I mean, the government is the biggest gangster around. They're getting a piece yeah, of everything, yeah. everything. And mm-hmm. then even after you work as long as you did, we might give you retirement. We're not sure, okay, because that's getting ready to flip. That script's getting ready. As long as the system is in place, the system can change the rules at any time. I mean, your piece said that. It went from non-Christian to non-white. Trust me. They had, they've debated on, on how they're going to change, um, you know, every designation of yeah. race. We can keep flipping the script. The, the only thing that stays the same is poverty. Y'all ain't going nowhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to show you a couple uh, flickers of, of hope, but the masses, you're not going nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So T- tell we us just what gotta, you're going to do at Truth Works. I don't know. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know. I'm just like, y'all, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know, because the way you just broke down your show like this, I mean, that is, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was, it's what I call, you know, teaching talk radio. That's that's what that is. Um, That's like being in the classroom, professors in, all right? We can really break this down. Well, you know, we used to a long time ago when I was doing four hours a day, five days a week, and most Saturdays uh, because something had happened uh, or the mail didn't come till late, so I didn't have the article because, you know, we didn't have email during that time. Uh, We used to call it the university in the air, the Air Force. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're really looking forward uh, to you becoming – uh, the navigator, uh, mm. directing navigation, and helping us come out of the matrix and live outside the matrix. All right. And, yeah. Well, um, see, the great thing about the navigator is that he has a lot of the navigator has a lot of tools and resources. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. 
because I'm not about to say I have all the answers or, or anything, but yeah. I but I do. I have studied and I have over the years um, gotten to this place right now, and it's interesting because now all the dots. I do a lot of connecting of the dots, and uh, mm-hmm. life is about being a critical thinker. And if you're mm-hmm. a critical thinker, no one can pull the wool over your eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, but but you can live in denial. There can be times where you just like, look, I don't care. I don't yeah. want to know nothing. I'm a, I'm a just sit here and look at the water and and just be happy. You Next know. Next week um, we're going to be talking about um, with Dr. Raymond Wimbush. Uh, here at Our Common Ground, we're going to be talking about um, therapies for uh, post-slave traumatic. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Come on now, Dr. Thank Leary. Yeah. And you know what? About, uh, Dr. Wimbush and I go, go way back, too. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> he's, so he's going he's to be awesome. with us. And I'm also going to be having a discussion with him about the film Twelve Years a Slave. Mm, um, right. So uh, it, it's going to be really exciting um, to have you come to TruthWorks Network to to do some of this work around um, denial and around miseducation and getting the education out there, because I think that we are in 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 tune. Uh, Two, if we don't begin to transform what is happening in America, our children are going to have so much less than we ever had. And that is such a I think they already do. I think they already do. I I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, I have a son. Yeah, um, I know. I thought I thought we'd be a lot further along. I didn't think I'd I'd be you know feeling like we're still struggling. I've really I, I mean because it just seemed like hey we're on a good track everybody's moving along, yep. but you know I remember the eighties it was just like eighties was just like everybody was just focused on them and and um, it was just interesting. I mean um, yep. our our kids they have a lot more but. They don't have the same connection, as you talked about, the disconnect, the same connection to the slavery piece, and then even they don't want to, like, get into it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because but it's there. If you, if, you really, if you really pull yourself outside of the matrix and look inside, you understand that in every aspect, economic, social, educational, political, you know, we are yeah. living in an era of Jim Crow. Definitely. Very early post-construction. Yeah. And and I really do feel, as much as I'm, I'm sure people will disagree with me, that integration was the beginning of the end because the integration caused us to look away from our communities yeah. and to begin yeah. this, 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 this path of validation, mm-hmm. this path of comparison, always being compared the white girl to the black girl, the white man to the black man. It was always this comparison, which always led us to being validated by them, looking like yep. them, you know, doing Absolutely. everything so that we would be 
of course, the illusion of inclusion. I mean, mm-hmm. assimilation is what it is. You assimilate, but still, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make sure that I do certain things to let you know. Do not get this twisted, okay? Because, because Oprah went to Paris. She tried to get into a shop. They told her, no, you're not coming in. She's like, hey, do you not know who I am? It, it, it didn't matter, did it? No. Okay. It really. Didn't. I still no. see your color first. You know, uh-huh. Henry Louis, Henry Louis Gates. Uh-huh. What happened uh-huh. to him? You know, yeah. I'm gonna let you know. I'm like, are y'all are y'all serious? Do you really think that we're gonna let you get so far without slapping your hand? You know, yep. this is yep. what's happened happening to Obama. He got in there, yes, um, but there he's not, catching hell. Not okay? even the president of the United States escapes white. But I'm gonna say this: I, I really I appreciate him, but he's not he's not doing enough for us. He's yep. not. Okay. Hey Blanche, it's on his great. Watch. No, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We're girl. not gonna. We're we're not gonna. We're we. You know, and and and. I I I hear you, and it is absolutely true, that it has made no difference, and we are being punished for it. Yeah. Well, they just want us to feel good right now. Yeah. Feel that's good. Right. The sentimentality. Okay. The symbolism of him is supposed to yep. be enough to feed us, okay? Yep. yep. But hey, Blanche, I am else. looking forward to having Blanche Williams join the Truth Works Network family and Monday nights at 10 p.m., and you're going to begin on uh, premiere your, your program, which you have not decided what it's going to be called yet. I'm just going to put a big B with Blanche and an exclamation mark for December 30th, Monday, 10 p.m., to um, launch um, your navigation. God help you all. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. i got to get ready to get out of here. I really appreciate you calling in tonight. It's been a great chat. Absolutely. Peace, all. Good night, Blanche. And um, I want to wish all of you a very good uh, weekend. And uh, to remind you, there's going to be a cable station, I think it's HBO on November 18th, uh, hosted by Whoopi Goldberg, um, doing Mom's Mabley. I think all of you will enjoy that very much. And I did call the book by Lerone Bennett, they came before the Mayflower. That was the title of the book when it was first um, published, but now it's called Before the Mayflower, A History of Africans in America. So that's really interesting. Next week at Our Common Ground, we're going to have, as we talked with uh, Blanche Williams joining TruthWorks Network, uh, Dr. Raymond Wimbush. He is the director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University. He has been with us many times before, but he and I are going to talk about the new um, mental health strategies, close encounters with black mental health. And in the second segment, he and I are going to have a very intimate conversation about 12 years a slave. On 
November 30th, we're going to have um, Antoinette Harrell Africa. She is the host of Nurturing Our Roots television program at NOA TV Network, and we're going to be talking about what she is doing on television, net, net, Nurturing Our Roots television talk show. Um, and um, she is um, certainly an expert in communications and African-American history. We thank you so very much for, for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Have a good weekend, and don't forget, make the effort to connect. Connecting to our history brings us closer to doing what we need to do to build our future. It is so important that you begin to live out what is inside of you, living out what is inside of you. Who are you when you don't know when you should have done, but you didn't. When you should have, but you don't. When you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? Love me, love me, love me, say you do. Let me fly away with you for my love. Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, and our website at OurCommonGround.com. Twitter, follow at JaniceOCG. Have a great weekend. See you next week and join us on TruthWorks on Wednesdays and Fridays, 10 p.m. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. So I'm from a stock that pitch cocktail bombs and hand grenades. We pour cayenne pepper around the perimeter of a building to keep the police dogs at bay. I'm the Panther Party in a Desire Housing Project for New Orleans. I'm a nigga turning the gun on the National Guard to take a long, long look. I'm a cook in the kitchen asking the missus to taste the dinner. Take a long, long sip because death ain't always this good. It's eyes popping out their sockets. It's a lifeless body rocking backwards and forwards. It's a boy's Bad 47 times in front of the church house. It's a man 43 years old stuffing his penis in a nine-year-old girl's mouth. No, death don't always taste good. Just don't sound like something I want to eat often. I hear them say it was like a train came through the room, left mama so depressed she was unable to move until one day, a few months after the hurricane. 
Husband and child found the Trinity bloody in bed. His wife, son, a daughter dead. And on the end table there was a letter that read, I couldn't stay here, not for one minute longer. And it made no sense for me to leave here alone. Because who would take care of my babies with their mama gone? I'm telling you, death ain't always good. It'll leave you finning for water and food. It'll riddle up your body in an Audubon ballroom. They'll El Hajj Malik El Shabazz you, crown you king. Then dethrone you in a Lorraine hotel They'll disfigure your body To where folk can't tell If you Emmett Till or not Tell them mama Keep that casket open Let all the world see It ain't just burning in Mississippi Hell is hot wherever you be From the rooftop to the cell block Step on up to the auction block Been over Touch your toes So show your teeth Lift her titties Examine his balls It damn near sound like a hip-hop song But it's slavery at its peak. A circus for all the freaks. They'll warn you caution when you speak. Can't afford the truth to leak, but we'll say blessed are the meek and all the ones who make peace and all the ones who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For we say theirs is the kingdom. Earth is their inheritance, so no matter how treacherous, they'll try to trap us in them trenches. They'll dig deeper ditches, but all that matters is this. Which side will we pick which path will we choose either win or lose cause death don't come in vain not for us to remain enslaved or our spirits to remain in cages it comes so we though we might be courageous to fulfill our obligation to our God and all creation and stand in determination able to look death in the face and say we made it we made it we made it we